Let's begin with prayer. Uh, Come, Heavenly Father. Come, Holy Spirit. Open the hearts and minds uh, of the people that are here in the room and those that are listening online to be able to uh, not just hear your word, but receive it, that it may be good soil for each seed that you are providing to grow and flourish uh, in their hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. And I could not have asked for a better transition. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. When we are looking at the work of the Holy Spirit, that is what the the sermon series that we are in right now is focused on. And last week we, uh, we started at the second chapter of Acts and the actual coming of the Holy Spirit. And it was manifested, as we were just alluding to, in an extremely practical way, right? Sometimes the gifts, yes, they are miraculous, but they are extremely practical. They are meeting the needs that we have in the moment. What we saw in the second chapter of Acts was believers from all over the world that had gathered, and the gift that was immediately given was for the ability for them to hear in their own tongues, in their own language, the story of the salvation of the Messiah who had come and had risen and that his kingdom was now at hand. An infinitely practical way for the Holy Spirit to be manifested immediately here on earth and in that moment, in that environment, provide what was needed just then and there. So we're going to be going deep into that second chapter of Acts but I want to be able to start by setting some additional context. Uh, as, as you know, when, uh, when I do talk, I love to have the Word physically in our hands. And so I encourage you to reach forward and grab that Bible out of the pew that's in front of you. Uh, we are, there is so much that the Lord has laid on my heart to share with you. I may have to go quicker than I would like to through some of this. But I do want you to go with me through Uh, God's Word as we explore this together uh, and hear what He has for us. I'm going to start in John chapter 16 as just some context setting, again, for the apostles who had just spent about three years, a thousand days, every day and night, walking with the Lord Jesus being discipled by him, being instructed by him. And so many of the things that he taught, now as we come into this second chapter of Acts, are just being illuminated to them. They are just now beginning to understand some of the things that he told them previously. And so, as it relates to this second chapter of Acts, I want to just revisit a couple of those so that your minds are thinking in the same way that theirs may have been when they were experiencing this. John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said to them, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, then I will send him to you. He previously talked about the Holy Spirit in so many different ways and how that was going to be manifested. For instance, in John 7, he had described it as rivers of living water 
flowing out of us through not just the disciples, but through us. And then he goes on in John chapter 16, um, verse 13. He said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me because it is from me, Jesus, that he will receive what he will make known to you. He was preparing them to understand that, yes, while he was going to sit on a throne in heaven, that he was not departing from them, that it was actually for their benefit, and that the Holy Spirit's role was to continue to help make them and to help make us more like Jesus. Now, that was before the crucifixion. Some of these things, in fact, it actually says, as Jesus was teaching them, they didn't really understand what he was saying to them at the time. They still needed to be taught, to have that illumination of the Holy Spirit come to them. So if you move a couple of chapters forward to John 20, this is now as the disciples were gathered together. They had heard the reports that the tomb was empty. Even though Jesus had said this, this is exactly what was going to happen. They were now together in one place. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When ultimately they felt anything but peace in the time and the trials that they had all just been through. After he had said this, he showed them his hands. He showed them his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He's reminding them of the commission that he had given them. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. But wait, this isn't Pentecost. This isn't what we had just read about in the second chapter of Acts. But what does that breathing on remind you of? It's that breath of life that was given to Adam in Genesis, right? All creation in and through Jesus, that breath of life. Now here, this breathing on them and and the words that he associated with that were actually a symbol or a pledge and confirmation of what they were going to receive on the day of Pentecost. But while he was physically with them, there the deity is casting his breath upon them and committing that gift of the Holy Spirit, which was to then come now as we lead into that second chapter of Acts. 
Because keep in mind, he had instructed them to wait for the Spirit after this time. After saying, receive the Holy Spirit, he instructed them to wait for that presence of the Spirit to come and fall on them. Now, some additional context as, again, we're coming into that second chapter of Acts. I want to deal not just with the disciples broadly, but in this second chapter of Acts, we're about to see Peter come and address everyone. But there's a few things that we, again, have to put ourselves in the context of Peter with to really understand what he had just come from that leads us to this point. Because remember, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Peter fell away. Peter denied his Lord and Savior three times. And since that time, Peter's been dealing with that remorse. And you can only imagine the kind of attack that the enemy had brought to him. In fact, the enemy had said he was going to sift them, the apostles, during this period of time. But turn now to the next chapter in John 21. This is in the 40-day period after Jesus had first appeared to them now in this room after his, um, his resurrection, but he's not yet ascended. But he met with some of the disciples. Uh, he's on a beach. He had performed another miracle, just like one early, as he had initially called Peter, where he cast his net on the other side of the boat and brought in an enormous load of fish. And so then he sat and had a meal with Peter and James and John. And John is actually recording this because he was there. He had experienced this firsthand. And his infinite compassion and mercy addresses Peter in this way in John 21. Starting at verse 15, he says to him, When they had finished eating, Jesus says to, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's kind of a funny phrase, isn't it? More than these what? It could mean a lot of different things, but if we cut back, and you don't have to turn there, but back when they were in, in the midst of the Last Supper in Matthew 26, Jesus it was talking about how he was about to be arrested and crucified. And during the Last Supper, Peter, his boastful and proud personality, said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Basically saying, I love you more than these other disciples. That was his claim in that moment. You see, and Jesus starts in this sentence by asking him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because the beautiful thing about our Savior's forgiveness is that it encompasses 
the breadth and the depth of our whole sin. You see, he knows in this time when he's asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? He knows (laughs) that it encompasses more than just the initial denial, but that attitude, that heart, that boastful pride that needed to be surrendered. So continuing, he had asked him the first time, do you love me more than these? And Peter then responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, I know that you, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? That's that agonizing point, right? Denied the Lord three times. And in Luke 22, it actually describes at that moment when our Savior is beaten and bruised and Peter denied for the first time, it actually says that the Savior turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine catching his eye at that moment? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. It was in this process, this glorious forgiveness and restoration of Peter that he went through that points to the the first quote that I want to share here. You see, Jesus seeks first for the surrender of the affections. It's what you love. It's not just the emotions. It's your affections. What do you love? What are you focused with your heart on? And believes that if these are surrendered, then all else will follow. And love being given, then loyalty and service and repentance and hatred of self-will and of self-seeking will follow in her train. Peter experienced that angst, that need for forgiveness, that falling away from our Savior. And our Savior lovingly came and restored him. And now, having been forgiven by our Savior, having been breathed on, and now at the beginning of Acts, receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter is restored and fully commissioned as the rock on which the church will be built. And so as we turn to Acts chapter 2, that is now who is coming to the stage to speak. It makes this individual, this person, Peter, somewhat more relatable with the things that he is going to illuminate How did he come to understand these things is really the same way that we are enabled to come to understand these things through the gift of the Holy Spirit.
So in Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 14, because again, the Holy Spirit had come. I said, here's this infinitely practical gift where people from nations all over the place are hearing this good news, the story of God's kingdom coming now. They're hearing it in their own languages. How could it be? And they actually uh, say uh, they they must be drunk, right? They must have had too much wine. And so now in verse 14, Peter then stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What an amazing prophecy. And let's start to drill into this. When Peter starts and, and starts to read about this, um, these words from the prophet Joel, he says, um, in the last days... Uh, and translated afterward. It's specifically pointing to the time of the Messiah. He's beginning to establish a time frame reference. So he's, it's the period of time in which this prophecy is to occur. So afterward, meaning after the Messiah has come, he will pour out. And this isn't just a little trickle, right? This is a measure of abundance, that flowing out of living waters, an abundant flow of this gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, the the bestowal of the, the Spirit was restricted in both quantity as well as the number of recipients. There were specific individuals in the society in the Old Testament that had this bestowal of the Holy Spirit and would be able to hear and serve in this gift of prophecy. Now, it also doesn't say that he will pour out gifts or graces, but it says he will pour out my spirit. This isn't just part of the Holy Spirit that you might receive. This isn't just one individual gift, but he's pouring out my Holy Spirit, all of what he is and all of what I am will be poured out in these days. And it's also easy to think about prophecy as uh, just uh, you know, predictions related to the future. But the reference here is actually, it's more general. It's about inspired instruction in moral and religious truth. Not just foretelling of things to come, but rather opening and applying the scriptures is the broad sense of this philosophy, excuse me, of prophecy. The prophet wasn't just a foreteller, but a forth teller, bringing forth what is hidden in God's word already and illuminating it 
for the times that we live in today. The other important aspect of each of these, um, these relations between old and young and men and women, it's because in this gifting of the Holy Spirit, there's no distinction between age, gender, race, class, or social status. This is echoed by Paul in Colossians where he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You see, this prophecy isn't just saying that only old people uh, are going to prophesy and only young men are going to see visions. It's saying everyone in that spectrum Everyone is being included in this, whereas previously it was restricted. Previously it was isolated. Now it is flowing in abundance to each and every one of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Now the wonders and signs that it describes, uh, we heard and saw that in Chloe's actions, right? (laughs) We can already attribute that to the memory verse that we see when it talks about the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That's the other end of that time box, right? This period that we're in began with the Messiah, Jesus, and will remain until his second coming. So the period that we're in today, the first and second coming, that's when all of this is relevant. So I've got another slide Uh, This is really just uh, an outline of the rest of my sermon, so it's a good thing that uh, kickoff for the Super Bowl tonight isn't until about 5.30. It's going to take us a while to go through all of this. This is just, it's an amazing representation on, which is on the left side, all the Old Testament prophecies, and on the right side, where in the New Testament... It's reflecting its fulfillment and tying it back, right? This isn't just a few prophecies, but articulating ultimately that the Bible is one cohesive story that points us to Jesus. (laughs) So if we do want to go through this today, we might finish by kickoff 2025. I'm not sure that we can do it just today. (laughs) But part of where we are and where we're going is, you can see that there's a a gap between the left and the right-hand side. There's actually a 400-year period leading up to John the Baptist and Jesus himself where it was silence. There were no prophets in the land. And the people were just, they were in, they were waiting. They, were, they didn't have this illumination. They didn't have this gift that's now being bestowed uh, on the land and on the people. So suddenly when John the Baptist comes and then Jesus, and he's speaking in parables, and they can't understand what all of these mean, now all of a sudden, the gift of the Holy Spirit begins to help the apostles in their teachings, and now each of us to illuminate every prophecy and how it is being or going to be fulfilled all the way into Revelation. (laughs) One story 
pointing to Jesus. Let's continue then in that second chapter of Acts, starting at verse 36. Now, Peter went on. We can't, I would love to spend even more time um, going into just an amazing set of Old Testament prophecies. Uh, In fact, as Peter goes on in this second chapter, uh, he's alluding to um, some uh, some prophecies specifically from David in the Psalms. Uh, And reading the Psalms is amazing because sometimes it reflects the fact that you can't necessarily tell or distinguish David's voice when he's talking about himself from David's voice when he's hearing the Holy Spirit and it becomes prophetic. And so we don't have time today to go into all the detail behind these, uh, these psalmaic prophecies, but it's amazing to reflect the way that we often can hear the Holy Spirit talking to us, that it sounds like my own voice. And learning to hear and understand that that voice is really in the same way that David may have heard it when he was writing these psalms and actually prophesying about Jesus. But Peter now is bringing this back to the so what point. Okay? So we've... He's, he's illuminated the prophet Joel, and he's illuminated these psalms pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And so he says, starting in verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other, other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That is you. That is me. That is my children. That is my future grandchildren. That is for all who call on the name of the Lord and will be saved. You see, all the rest of the New Testament and these writings are pointing to the fact that the Messiah has come for our salvation, but he has also come and brought his kingdom, which is to come but is also for today. Second Corinthians, Paul writes, and is actually quoting from Isaiah. Again, this New Testament, Old Testament reconciliation. He says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. That is the quote from Isaiah. And then Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. So remember, in my last message back in September, I talked specifically about this kingdom that it is now and to come, that today the kingdom has arrived, the reign of God in Jesus. And so there's a great summary that I had picked up and displayed in the last one. I just want to read this as just a reminder of some of those points of what does God's kingdom mean for us today? 
And this is from John Mark Comer. He says, The kingdom of God is the reign of God, the sphere where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is people in a place who are living under the active rule of God, living the way he intended and designed. It is all of God's promises and prophecies coming to pass in Jesus. It is the new covenant order in people who are no longer bound to a written law, but have the law written on their hearts. And the kingdom of God is available to any and to all who repent and believe. If you turn to Second Peter in the first chapter, he says, His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Right, this is Peter later in his life continuing to expand on that thought that we, are, we have Jesus living in us through the Holy Spirit and we are participating in all the goodness, the greatness, the power, the authority that Jesus displayed as he walked on this earth has now been given and granted to us. And so... Our role, our task, and part of that kingdom is really to live in a lifelong process of deepening your surrender to Jesus as Lord and King. My question for you, Crossroads, am I willing to let Jesus change and shape me into a person of Christ-like love rather than allowing our culture to do so? You see, the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 that he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, when God speaks, the entire creation, and I have a slide on this, please bring that up. When God speaks, the entire creation immediately begins moving to obey him. And when we, place before, when we place God before everything else, we authorize him to create things in our lives that do not exist and to call things into existence that are not. You see, creation did not end in Genesis. He is active in creating in and through us today as well. That is living in the kingdom today and what is available for us in living and operating in that kingdom. Now we are going through this sermon series on, in the chapter of Acts. We had been through a sermon series on the spiritual gifts Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as we just bring a couple of reminders. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
Paul had taught us about these spiritual gifts, and we've gone, we had gone through them in chapter 12 uh, in great detail, talking about each of them, how the intent of them is to be able to serve the body. And he says, um, follow the way of love, which is really the guiding principle for all of this, and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Because in receiving all of the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit can operate within us and provide these gifts based upon the way that we operate within the kingdom. But he says, earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And this earnestly or eagerly desiring is being zealous for or striving for. It's not something to passively wait for, right? I have to strive because I want this, because it's a promise that God has offered to me, and I want every promise coming from God. It's, you see, these gifts are not like a Christmas gift that, you know, I make a Christmas list and eh, wake up on Christmas morning, I didn't get it. It's not that big a deal. guess I'm not going to get that this year. No, this isn't like that. This is a gift that is promised and you are to lean in to eagerly desire those spiritual gifts. And in verse 3, why is prophecy important? Because the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, their encouraging, and comfort. If you can bring up the next quote, the gifts of God himself, the gifts are God himself working in and through us. They are concrete, often tangible, visible, and vocal disclosures of divine power showcased through human activity. A gift of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit himself coming to clear and to sometimes dramatic expression in the lives of God's people as they minister one to another. You see, the gifts are not for us This isn't a gift for me to receive and keep to myself, but these are gifts to be given for the body and for the benefit of those that are around you and those that are outside of this building in need of God's blessing and his encouragement and his good news. Sam Storms alludes to what he refers to as kind of an unwritten 11th commandment, and that's not a good thing because we're not supposed to add or detract from the law. (laughs) Right? This 11th commandment that I think is prevalent not just in our church, but in many churches today, is this. As it relates to the spiritual gifts, thou shalt not do at all what others do badly. Thou shalt not do it all what others do badly. Right? We are humans. And as we are exercising and practicing these spiritual gifts that are given, we don't always do it right. You may have had an experience, whether here at this church or at another church or at a conference, or it wasn't done right. But that doesn't mean that these gifts are not for us, it doesn't mean that we are not to seek and actively use them in service of God's kingdom today. It means we are to lay those at the foot, those pains that we experienced at the foot of the cross to forgive 
and to seek forgiveness when we don't do things right. So, earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts. Now we have to talk about prayer because none of this happens without prayer. When Jesus was ministering here on earth, already knowing what people needed, already knowing what they wanted if they came for healing, he would still ask them, what do you want from me? He wanted them to articulate it. He wanted them to be able to say, here's what I need. Lord, you know everything, but he would still ask, here is what I need. Well, James talks about this in chapter 4. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And sometimes that's just about the things that we want, but here I think it's also applicable to these gifts. Everything that God is going to provide for us, he still wants us to ask for it, even though he, may know, he knows that we need it. In Luke chapter 11, a familiar verse, Jesus instructs us very specifically. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. But these are requiring an active role on our part. Right? But then he concludes, How much more then, when you ask, will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And bring up this next quote. This is important. We must never assume that God will give us apart from prayer, what he has promised in Scripture to only give us in response to prayer. You see, in prayer, that is how we pray, as Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come. By interacting in God's kingdom and using the power and the gifts that he's given to us, we can change reality with the power of God. You see, there's, there's power in prayer, but through that relational interaction, it's also how we enable the Holy Spirit uh, to work on how we respond to our environment and even to our emotions. And it's the counter. Prayer is the counter to anxiety and fear. I love the story that Tom shared of the woman who was disoriented but found her way and spent the evening in prayer and physical manifestation of protection around her. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I was on an airplane uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there's about... 10 million airplanes that, um, that land in the United States, you know, either traveling outside the country, inside the country, but 10 million airplanes that have um, just regular normal landings uh, in the U.S. Only about 150 of those 10 million landings 
are emergency landings because of equipment failure or an, an engine going out, for instance. Well, I had the unique opportunity a couple of weeks ago to be on one of those 150 planes. Um, and very interestingly, um, I, was, uh, I, was, I don't watch videos normally on those. I, I listen to podcasts. It's a great way to, I think, be focused in, in, in investing myself in um, you know, what God has for us. I was specifically listening to a podcast on prayer, and my podcast on prayer was rudely interrupted by an announcement that we were having to make an emergency landing because our right engine had failed. My response in that moment was to actually chuckle. <laughs> I'm like, okay, God, I guess we're going to put this into practice right now. And so uh, I you know, had my noise-canceling headphones in. I didn't restart the podcast at that moment, but I just spent an unknown period of time in prayer, very specifically. Lord, you have the ability to carry these wings and carry us safely to the ground, where uh, thankfully, of course, we did come down. There were emergency vehicles lining the runways, the whole nine yards. Um, it was a, a really surreal experience, and I had coworkers that were on that plane. And later that evening, as we were at a reception, I listened to some of those coworkers who described the experience as having their life flash before their eyes, that they were terrified, that it was a life-changing experience for them. And as a co-worker turned to me and said, what was it like for you? I was able to just confidently look at them and say, actually, I was just praying and I was at complete peace. And I was. I had no fear in what could have been a terrifying moment, and other people articulated it as such. This is the kind of peace that is for us, and the kind of encounter that we need to have in and through prayer as the Holy Spirit continues to work and provide those gifts that are then for the benefit of our ministries and for other people. Now, contemplative prayer is where I want to be able to end with this message, and I apologize for going so long today. Contemplative prayer is really centering our hearts and minds on God and being in his presence. You see, we are in the middle of an instant gratification culture, right? With our cell phones, with social media being a constant distraction, almost every waking instant, if I am not looking at um, my phone, me generically, right? If we aren't looking at our phones, I'm distracting with my phone. I'm distracting with email. I'm distracting with television. Even in my, my, my morning Bible time, uh, I'm very diligent. Uh, every morning, I've, I, I'm able to set aside beautiful, rich, 30, 45 minutes of time in the Bible, but then I'll check my watch and I've got 10 or 15 minutes before my conference call starts. And I'll say, okay, God, I'm listening, but you only got 10 minutes because I got a conference call coming up, right? We have to be able to invest. Every night, I've fallen into a terrible habit of 
just watching television to kind of decompress before bed every night. So what do you think is on my mind as I crawl into bed? It's not the things of God. It's the culture that I just let flow through my mind by just staring at that television mindlessly. Yeah, it may alleviate some of the distractions and the stress, but by taking away that television, by giving myself very specific times, do I give myself enough opportunity? Do we give ourselves enough room in our cluttered minds to allow ourselves, as Peter described, to see visions and dream dreams? What we need is to intentionally carve out more time and more space in our heads to allow for God to speak to us and for the Holy Spirit to work in us. You see, Jesus withdrew to lonely places. And I assure you, it wasn't just um, to catch up on the latest YouTube videos, right? He withdrew to those lonely places because he was in communion with the Father right? John Mark Comer says, the main thing that we get out of prayer is not answered prayer. It is God himself. So maybe those of you who are really good at contemplative prayer, just being in his presence are really good at this, but I was working on an image for myself this week, and maybe you take this away. Contemplative prayer can be like walking in the Garden of Eden with God, as Adam did. Right? So rather than envisioning God as some scary faraway person, I'm walking through the garden in communion with the creator of the universe. <laughs> I'm in awe of him, so tell him so. What might he want to say to me just as we walk in silence and I bask in his presence? You see, part of that daily surrender that we have is training ourselves to listen. Crossroads, that's what I'm calling us to, right? Create that space, create that room in our cluttered minds so that he can speak to us, that he can do that work. I'm going to ask the prayer ministers, I'm going to ask our elders as well to come forward because I think that we need to specifically take action in prayer. Don't miss this opportunity, Crossroads to have prayer today, to deepen your relationship with God. I will ask you first, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and acknowledged him as both Savior and King, then I invite you to take that step now. Come forward and pray that prayer today. If you are not sure whether you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, come forward and pray and ask for that now. If you have experienced some kind of fear or negativity associated with the Holy Spirit or with other people misusing the gifts, come today and lay that at the foot of the cross. And if you are earnestly desiring an increase of a spiritual gift as Paul describes, then pursue that in prayer today. Please, prayer ministers, come forward. Crossroads. I'm going to dismiss you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you shared with me 
to share with Crossroads this week. I know that it's a lot to take in. But I pray that these seeds do fall on good soil. That they would blossom and grow. But they, they are not just words. That they become actions that people take into their lives. Please stand for the benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Crossroads.